Welcome, everyone. This is a brief history of power. I'm Colonel Willie Grills here with Dr. Adam Kuntz. Today, we are taking listener questions. Adam, how are you? Outstanding. How are you? I am good. How is the weather out that way? (laughs) It's very nice. About 55 for the high today and sunny. Yeah, I think we're I think we're getting back in the 60s today. 70s very soon. So that'll be good. Uh, everybody about died earlier in the week when it hit 47, but we were going to make it. We're going to make it. <laughs> and you really? had snow. So like half the state died at that point in January, yeah. as far as I understand. Yeah. And then uh, I think Northwest Arkansas got snow um, earlier in the week and, uh, you know, it was just over for them. That's where Walmart lives. So, you know, we had to, you know, offer up supplications and prayer, but we made it and that's what matters. <laughs> and so now... Hopefully with the early Easter this year, you know, we'll have, it'll be nice and, uh, and cozy, but we'll see. We'll see. February's not over yet. Did Walmart make it? I mean, I'm just wondering how long Walton's five and dime is going to destroy rural America. So. Well, it's already done its job. It's over. It's over. (laughs) It's kind of, and Dollar General's come in to, uh, you know, (laughs) glean the edges of the field. Yeah. Clean up everything else. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So now, so here. And for the folks at home, if you have these, please let us know. So there's Dollar General, the regular Dollar General, which is sh- slowly but surely strangling our Dixie. And uh, but now we have Dollar General Markets, which are the upscale Dollar Generals. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so get, if you buy Lululemon, you go to Dollar General Market. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. All right. You can get some fresh produce in there. Okay. You know, freshish. And so yeah, you know. Keep, you know, it's like they they put the they put the uh, the local IGA out of business, and uh, now they think it's a revolutionary thing. A local small grocery store. Whoever thought of this? How short <laughs> is our institutional memory? <laughs> anyway, if you if you shopped at an IGA in your life, uh, please uh, leave it in the comments. Let us know. Yeah, I I definitely have. So yeah, you know, that's all we had, right? You know, there was a time in this country where you could become, say, a meat cutter at IGA at 18 and retire there with a full pension and live and your wife could stay at home and your kids would love you. Just yeah, something so, to think about. Yeah. My, uh, my grandfather actually started as a stock boy yeah. in a small town in the Southern tier of New York and supported a very large family eventually working up through, you could also just have a high school education and be fine. Yeah. yeah. Or less. Those were the days. <laughs> right. All education that formal education is overrated you know what you need to do is just go work at the brick plant the steel mill whatever we you're, used to make things yeah you're getting a certain kind of an education there that that you're not going to get right. from sitting in class exactly well with that said speaking of education we who have gone on to a higher education we hypocrites here are here to take your question <laughs> who have never made a brick in our lives as far as i know <laughs> No, sir. No, I worked in an aluminum mill in college during the summer, but very wholesome. But it wasn't, it wasn't brick. But it was, it was a product of a bygone era. So. We're gonna count it. I mean, I've got bauxite, Arkansas, just the next town south of. <laughs> yeah, here, that's so. right. Yep, yep. That was that would have been key. <laughs> yeah, a company aluminum, an aluminum company town. So, all right. Well, we've got some good questions here from the folks at home, and we're gonna tackle them as best we can. And so the the first question is, have you talked about the chosen Uh, quote? It may not be completely radical, but there seems to be a lot of questions and thumbs down opinions about its portrayal of Christ and Christianity and questions about the people producing it. So let's talk a little bit about that. So the chosen is an independently produced television program telling the story of Jesus. I was going to say from an evangelical perspective, but if technically uh, they have a lot of people on the board producing it from Catholics to evangelicals to Mormons. And I think that the Mormon uh, influence is probably what is really causing a lot of people to be concerned. I believe from the second season on, they've actually filmed at the sets provided by the LDS church out in Utah. So um, high quality, old Jerusalem sets that they have ready for all the films that they make. And so, yeah, I believe at least from second season on that that's what they've been using. So Adam, have you watched any of this? I watched a little bit basically because, and this is a couple years ago now, because people were asking about it, it being 
motion pictures. My knowledge and interest is is extremely low, but I did I did watch a little bit of it, and I've probably read a lot more about it than I have watched anything. Any any opinions based on what you've seen? Yeah, I mean, production quality is high. I, the the basic The basic problem with that is that it. The thing about moving pictures is that they they suck you in in a way because they are a kind of total work of art in a way that mm-hmm. Wagner hoped the opera would be, but but is in fact not. The total work of art is is in fact the film. Mm-hmm. And so it pulls you in very deeply by its nature. And what it's pulling you very deeply into with The Chosen is that you're dealing with a premise about personality and psychology and individual disciples that the Bible doesn't do. Mm-hmm. And th- this is the absolute most basic problem with it, even if it were completely completely produced by evangelical Protestants and and you know and weren't heavily influenced by the LDS church. Is that when you when you're taking that as the as your premise, you're dealing with okay, I I, I know the Bible doesn't say this, but or I know I know the Bible isn't really interested in this, but and now you are basing a lot of your understanding about who Christ is and who the disciples are and what it's like to be a disciple of Christ on this false premise. It is, um, I don't think there's any sin in watching the program per se. Right. No more so. I mean, you could quibble theologically about something like the Passion of the Christ, with Lu- which Lutherans are loath to do, or any production about it. Any artistic interpretation is going to have this this problem. I mean, maybe outside of something very strict like iconography or something like that. Sure. But you know what you mentioned, it kind of reminds me of a, a trend in relatively modern history, the psychological history of something, yeah. which is something mm-hmm. I hate to read. Yep. And so an example I'll give is Fawn Brody's biography of Joseph Smith. So no man knows my history. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a garbage piece. It became the standard biography for him, but I say it's garbage because so much of it is reading Joseph Smith's mind. It can never be an accurate history when you're trying to figure out a person's thoughts and emotions that are hidden from you right? and and far removed. And that's a little bit what you get with the disciples and the chosen. And you'll know that. I was going to say, that's why if you're going to read one biography of Joseph Smith, you go to Russell (laughs) Rowling and, uh, and, you know, this is, it's now a Mormon podcast, Yeah, Uh, (laughs) but I, you know, getting your theology from a TV program that isn't the Sopranos is a problem. And so we, and I think a lot of people know that, yeah, but, but also right. a lot of people don't. And it's a little bit kind of like the problem with, okay, so the Super Bowl commercial, which I don't want to talk about because I'm already tired of people talking about it, but like, yeah. even like something like, what would Jesus do? It kind of puts you in this trying to think about what the character of Jesus would do, not what the revealed, not what we know that the yes, revealed Jesus right. did. Yeah, exactly. It's a little bit of the problem with, like the book Celebration of Discipline. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. Uh, and Contemplative Prayer, which were one of the disciplines is sit and be quiet and try to imagine Jesus sitting next to you and what he would say. And those kind of problems would be obvious to anyone. Now, there's a way in which you can rightly do that. What would Jesus say? And if you're thinking in terms of what he said in Scripture, you're good to go. Yeah. If you're thinking in terms of a specific revelation toward your situation, eh, you're on a little bit of shaky ground there. That's right. And so that would be the caution there. Film, like a lot of art, I mean, even opera, like I mentioned before, is often an attempt to play on emotions. And that's what The Chosen does. And it does it well, whether right or wrong. And we're probably more susceptible to emotional manipulation via media than ever. Yeah, totally. And so people need to be careful there, you know, because in any film, like let's take it outside of The Chosen, you know, what is what is moving me here? Is it the content of the words or is it the music being used here? Is it the lighting? It's There are all kinds of sensory things that can be used to kind of lull us into, into an emotional response. And, and so for people that do enjoy it, I think that you can safely enjoy it as long as you understand it for what it is. It's not a substitute for scripture. Now, yeah. somebody might say, well, but what if it's heretical? Okay, define what heretical is. Define what heresy is. You have to do that first, because that's a word that we throw around all the time for things that aren't really heresies. Now, all that said, 
I know that one of the issues that people had probably in the previous season was there was a promo and Jesus says, I am the law of Moses and all the Lutherans get mad. Well, he kind of is guys. So just calm down. (laughs) You know, I mean, he he is, the law is a reflection of God's character Um, and, and, and certainly is a projection of God's will. And so let's settle down on that one a little bit. Law, not bad. But people say, well, he means it in a Mormon way. I, I just don't know if there's enough proof yet to show the LDS influence. Now, put a time code on this episode because I don't <laughs> know what's going to happen in the new season or whatever. Sure. And I'm not like caught up on the show or anything like that. But there could come a time when we say, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you would say, like, for example, uh, Jesus movies Christians should avoid. You know, Nikos Kassensakis, Last Temptation of Christ, not for Christian consumption. And I'm perfectly fine saying that. And, and the in the novel itself, I don't even think has artistic merit. And so there are certainly things we need to avoid. I think the biggest con that The Chosen has is that it's not Franco Zeffirelli's Jesus of Nazareth, the greatest portrayal of Christ on film. That's art. You know, Jesus never blinks in the thing. Might be boring by today's standards. There's a lot of good Jesus movies out there if you really want to look. Yeah. But if you want if you want what I consider to be a better artistic just production, it's always definitely. I'm always going to go with the Italian. <laughs> but that's my personal opinion. Yeah. Your mileage may vary. Just make sure things don't replace scripture. And I and I've seen evidence of of this with the chosen, but anything I can point at the chosen, I can point at kind of any any portrayal of Jesus, people want to make that a substitute for the scriptures. Yeah. And that's where, and that's where the problem really comes. I think too, that when, whenever you're talking about movies, particularly on sacred subjects, you want to realize that there is actually a divine medium of revelation of the word of God. Right. And that because that has to do with words, either words read or words preached, an activity in which even when you're passive, you are your faculties are engaged in a very different way than when you are watching something unfold in front of you. When you are watching a preacher preach, you are engaged in a way and can be and reserve your own judgment and put things together in a way, still more when you're reading the word of God, mm-hmm. that you can't and you don't. And you don't even have to describe film or something like that as manipulative. It simply engages human beings in a different way. It's doing what it's intended to do. Right. Then then reading or or listening to preaching does. You know, part so, of the things yeah. oh sorry, go ahead. So so what the the issue here is that it's it's also shaping you. The medium shapes you in a way that you are unaware of until later. But the way I this is not so much evident in the young as far as movies go but it's evident as far as the internet goes is that i was talking to this guy and i said you can tell when people get all their opinions off the internet because unlike things that you have time to digest when you read them and then particularly when you're able to discuss them with other human beings when you get them and you just get them straight from the internet and this is honestly regardless of ideology topic anything they come out undigested and ferocious Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah you, yeah. you can tell how the guy got that opinion. And so the medium does affect not only the information received, but also your capacity to handle the information. Right. It's it's yeah. the difference between brewing and distilling. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Right. And uh, yeah, it's, you know, I think part of it, too, is the way in which a lot of people, at least in our theological circles, approach scripture, too. Oftentimes they're taking it with a lectionary only based approach. And so you're only ever getting these small chunks or even a, even good devotional books do this. You only get these small chunks. I think that if you're wondering about, say, the drama or the narrative of Scripture, if you will take larger chunks, if you'll read yeah. larger portions of the gospel so that you right. can actually get a flow for the narrative, right? It, it might be more satisfying for the person that's going toward other media for, um, for uh, scriptural things. And, you know, just so, you know, you can sit down and read a whole gospel in an afternoon if you want to. Easily. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's not hard at all. Right. And it really is a, a different experience than just reading a passage here and a passage there. Right. Yeah. I mean, one thing you could do is just reckon up all the time that it took you to watch however many seasons of The Chosen there have been so far. 
and then say, okay, before I watch the next season, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with the gospels because that's what the chosen is directly about. See if I can take up all that time reading the gospels. And then if I have time left over, I'll go look at something else in scripture in the same thorough way. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to read it with a scalpel. You know, you don't have to, and and pouring over every jot and tittle of grammar or anything, just read it the way the original audience would have heard it. Right. You know, and you might be something worth trying. Yeah. So, you know, I know that there's concerns with the creator, Dallas Jenkins. He is the son of Jerry B. Jenkins, who was one of the authors of the Left Behind series. And so obviously there's going to be drift there. He has taken pains. And now sometimes he does say some things online. They're a little bit uncouth or come across kind of like, kind of like a meathead, but he's taken pains to be very ecumenical in his approach to this. And so you're always going to have a thinner theology when you do that. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and yeah. so that that's just the nature of the product. And look, I've seen the films that the LCMS produces. You do not want us making our version of the chosen. There was, there was something like it. I want to say it was in the eighties called Yeshua. Yeah. It might be five or six hours produced by essentially the Lutheran hour. Right. And yeah. And, and, and that was, that was interesting in its own regard, but you know, I, the fact that Colonel Grills doesn't even know about that kind of tells you, okay. Yeah, I only know, you know, right. this is your live. I know the uh, yep. like 1940s Walter movie that we did Yep. and the two thousands Walter movie. Oof. Yeah, so these are these these things exist more as uh, curiosities at this right. point. They're in some roadside museum next to the Fiji mermaid. <laughs> the museum is in Potosi, Missouri. <laughs> <laughs> next to one of Walter's gloves. <laughs> and not his carriage, but a wheel from one of his carriages. <laughs> right. Yeah. The uh the hob. Yeah. And so anyway. So if you have more specific questions about things in that, we can obviously tackle that at a later date. You know, if, if there are if listeners have like, okay, I saw this in this episode, what's your approach? We can, we can tackle that in another, another episode like this. So yeah. kind of related to that. So we do deal with a lot of, we'll say alternative narratives, perhaps revisionist history. How do we filter through media and specifically literature to find accurate sources of history? And can we make any recommendations on understanding history in its, in its context, its proper context? There, there is a lot to say about this, just kind of rolling off of the last question that we handled. One thing to realize is that the, the really precious commodity here is time mm-hmm. and that time gets lost really, really, really easily by modern people. And that's also why they feel, and in fact, probably are busy and stressed, even though if you look at, you know, after you, you know, if you make it past about age two in pre-modern times, you're probably going to live about as long as we do today, to be honest with you. I, I, I know that people think that everyone is living way longer, but just go ahead and read Psalm 90 and you tell me what the average life expectancy is in America today. And see how that lines up with Psalm 90. It's going to line up pretty well. Okay. And that's mm-hmm. that's a Psalm of Moses. So we have about as much time as they did. And in fact, mm-hmm. many of us have less than they did, especially in Genesis and Exodus. We, however, feel like that time is very pressed, very stressed, very fleeting. And that really is a function of the amount of information coming at us that we allow to hit us. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the first place to start is just to realize that you need to be really drastic about your time. And that's related to something that Christians have forgotten, which is that they are going to die. Yeah. Whenever somebody is diagnosed with stage four terminal cancer of some kind, and there's plenty of country music songs about this, not not you, so many you, in many other you genres. You to the punchline, Dr. Yes, Kurtz. sir. But, but <laughs> plenty of, plenty of, you know, God's own American music about this for the reason that when you know that you're going to die, and this as a Christian is something that you should think about every day. I mean, actually spends a minute, two minutes thinking about consciously, I'm not talking about when you're 75 and you think about it every day naturally. 
when you're 25, think about it one to two minutes every day. And that will clarify a lot about your life. <laughs> it'll, it'll make, it'll make so much, so much clearer that will help you plan your time. And this has to do therefore with planning your time, because my first suggestion is you feel like you're bombarded by white noise because you are allowing yourself to be, because you are letting time just fly away from you. Mm -hmm. Not even, yeah. not even particularly in the pursuit of anything, just on right. your phone, probably. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's, uh, we're, we're talking about uh triumph of the will here. You know, you actually have to <laughs> want to avoid it. Uh, avoid the white noise you right. have to be willing to to do something different so you put the skull on your desk or on your mantle and you look at it every day yeah to, to be reminded that you'll die and then that is the the function of the christian religion that we forget it's actually how to die right right and because christ has overcome death we will too you know nobody on their deathbed ever thinks man i wish i spent more time with candy crush I wish I'd watched a few more YouTube shorts. <laughs> I'm just laughing because the listeners don't know how Colonel Girl's life is being destroyed by YouTube shorts currently. It's, it's, but it's, I know it's terrible. Yeah, yeah, it just keeps coming at me, and I don't. I don't even watch them. They just. Do you want to watch this? No, there. I don't. Right. I don't. I don't want this in my life. No, I want uh, this two-hour documentary about the history of timber framing. Yeah, that's all I need. Yeah, that keeps right. me. That keeps me focused. Keeps me centered. <laughs> I, that's why I think long form podcasting is actually doing the Lord's work in part because it is do, in a small way actually making your attention span grow longer. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We do this the way that we do this for very specific reasons. Yeah. And no, I think I think you uh, you know spot on. You have to first be willing to avoid the noise, and then if, once you have your attention back under your control, direct it toward things that matter: faith and family. Uh, and work worth doing usually related to those two things. Yeah. So your vocation is not your job. Your vocation is son, daughter, father, mother, husband, whatever. And a few other ones, your vocation is not to circle K your vocation is not to a tech company. Those things serve your primary vocations. And now I know we're sounding very Lutheran here at this point, but, and in, and in the context of the vocation, when we're talking about how to die right, it's not really a selfish pursuit because you're teaching these principles to your children and yeah. to your spouse and to your neighbors. And and so you're bearing witness as you're you're actually learning how to be a better um Christian, learning how to bear testimony to the hope that is within you by the way you order your time. And if you can order your time and orient your time toward pursuits that are worthy. And then perhaps toward research that is worthy, um, then you'll be able to see more clearly the lay of the land. The listener had asked about finding accurate sources of history. And just to continue with this death idea yeah. to begin with, is that you have to, once you realize how you will be forgotten and how quickly, mm -hmm. that makes historical research, if that's specifically what you're interested in, whether for your own purpose or for some academic purpose or whatever, it makes it much easier because for example, I simply don't take people seriously when they make historical assertions who don't have knowledge of any primary sources available. Because the mm -hmm. first thing that you learn about your own life is that other people don't understand it. And once it's gone, they will forget it Right, by and large. So if you're talking about any historical event, however well known you may suppose it to be, you, you don't, you don't have to assume that like, you know, quote, you're being lied to or the history they didn't teach in school. A lot of talk about history is sort of a fundamentally fifth grade view of what history is, which is mm -hmm. teacher is supposed to tell you the right answers. Yeah. That, that's not it. That's not it. That's not life. That's not your life. That's not history. But you do, you need to realize even if your teacher didn't mean to lie to you or omit anything important or whatever, you need to go find things out for yourself and you need to do that through primary sources. I'll just give you an example is that there is a lot of controversy about how, for example, a war we've talked a little bit about on the podcast, the French and Indian war, which mm -hmm. I'm contending we don't have a revolution unless we have that for all sorts of reasons, how that war got started because it was, it was apparently 
had to do with a very young George Washington inadvertently allowing an Indian attack on Frenchmen he was negotiating with who had their their weapons down at the time. And so they were essentially just massacred. How did this happen? What happened? When things are controversial, when they matter, if you don't go back and read any primary source you can, and in that case, especially with military history, you don't go look at the land and see for yourself how things lay or or where people were, you don't really know what you're talking about. And so I'm just not going to take what you're saying very seriously. That's all. Mm -hmm. Because we're not interested in what is of immediate, direct political value. And you have to realize that most people who talk about the past, that's that's all they care about. Right. That That's all they care about. They just want some story that will make them stronger, feel better, whatever it is that they're looking for right now. Yeah. That's all they care about. And so that's what they're going to talk about in history. And you have... Um... You have access to primary sources that you never did before. I mean, yeah. at your fingertips. You don't even have to go to libraries or anything to get some of these. Another thing would be, and, and this is how you talk, you know, we're always getting things secondhand. We're getting secondhand history even within living memory sometimes. <clears throat> you know, you want to know what it was like back when? Go ask your grandfather if he's still alive. Yep. And don't wait till he dies and then go on YouTube and watch a, you know, a video about what life was like in the fifties or the forties or the thirties or the twenties. You know, there's still opportunity to ask some people these questions. Yep. And so, yeah. So to kind of summarize primary sources and, and um, yeah, just going, just going and talking to people who live through things can actually help while you can. Yeah, and so just not being reductionistic. I think with history, like with a lot of things, you just have to be willing to to do the legwork. And you know, how you your your skill and being able to read primary sources and interpret them, that's kind of up to you. How to cultivate that, you know, that's really going to depend on your period. I think that reading primary sources, you have to have a good grasp of the period. Some of that you might be able to glean through secondary sources, but a lot of it just comes through reading enough primary sources of the same era to understand how words were used, yeah. what certain terminology means. You know, that that's some things that are going to take time. We can't just say, here's the one book that will give you the golden key to interpreting history. <laughs> right, Unfortunately, yeah. that doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, but going back to the sources is going to be the way. So it's going to really depend upon what's available for the subject that you want to study. And uh, what your linguistic ability is. And so if you're talking about American history, uh, good news. Um, it's mostly in English. <laughs> right. So Yeah, right. Yeah. But but anything outside of that in England is going to get a little tricky. Yeah. And the, the idea of having a not being one-sided in your understanding of history is that people people become unbalanced in that way. That's kind of the that's the back office to what I described earlier as mm -hmm. what they're narrating for their own purposes. And again, this is not really particular to any ideology or topic. This is a general human dysfunction is that if up front you can see that they are always desperately certain about everything and they know exactly what it means and they have a full grasp of all of the events or whatever. Behind the curtain, what you're going to find, you know, back in the dressing rooms is that they generally are going to have to ignore most things because when you're looking at anything that occurred with human beings, if you are incapable of admitting complexity, mm -hmm. you're, you're not an honest person. You, you're just, you're just <laughs> not an honest person. And your best examples for how this gets written, you could look to divine examples. This is why I find the history books of the Old Testament so extremely fascinating, not only in their topics, where will the Messiah come from? How will prophecy play out? But also in how they say and don't say things. So for instance, they very rarely show emotion, something that film generally engages people in almost of necessity. Right? And so when they do show emotion, why do they show it that way? How do they show it? All that kind of thing. That's all very that's all very important for understanding how do I how do I present human beings with the complexity that they necessarily have? Mm -hmm. Lying about other people's lives will also and probably stems from, but will definitely result in lying about your own life. Mm 
Hmm. So there, there's a spiritual problem here with being a liar about other people's lives. That is, I think, kind of of necessity. What happens, especially where the stakes are high for human beings, is that they become extremely one-sided. You know, plenty of people lie about this podcast, lie about other people, lie about mm. all kinds of things going on in the church. And the reason they do that is because the stakes are high and they feel that their lie is somehow noble. Mm -hmm. The difficulty there is, in the end, lies come out, right? Mm -hmm. So we want to pursue truth. In order to do that, we have to let things be as complex as they are, just like they are in our own souls. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, once you've looked at an alternative view of history, then the temptation becomes, okay, then every, everything on that side of the alternate view is correct. You know, so the South was right in the Civil War. Therefore, Andersonville was a pleasant country club yeah. or something like that, you know. <laughs> yeah, that would be the, I mean, the literal father of the lost cause, like the phrase E.A. Pollard. I mean, that's, that's, right. that's the right. story. Yep. That's what he says. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, we agree. Most deaths were were caused by disease, but still, you know, right. not everything has to be like the complete 180 of what consensus history says either. Andersonville <laughs> right. is still unpleasant, you know. Right. So good on that. Now, uh, moving on to the next question, if we're ready. Yeah. This is referring back to a previous episode where Dr. Koontz made reference to the historical LCMS position on birth control. Yeah. And the view that your view that that position should not have changed. Um, and so the listener was asking if we could find the statement that explained the position, um, if we could provide it, but let's talk a little bit about what the, yeah. what the uh, position was. Yeah. The historic position on the question of birth control, probably you get it most clearly in a book written by Walter um, A. Meyer called for better, not for worse. That is generally about marriage. And there's, a chapter or two in there on um, contraception. That's a reflection of a larger consensus, but is probably the last clear, un unattacked, you know, explication of that consensus, which is mm -hmm. birth control could be a drastic medical intervention is not by any means some kind of normal procedure for uh, marital relations. Right. That's the that's the that's the basic in a nutshell statement. Birth control is a kind of a drastic medical procedure and should be treated as such by married couples. Married couples generally are going to be open to as many children as following natural is, natural is, patterns would leave them with. Yeah. Is Ray Winkle to be blamed for the synodical shift on the position? Yeah, Ray Winkle, who was on the same faculty, Concordia Seminary, <laughs> with Walter A. Meyer, and in fact, they were they were usually kind of two peas in a pod on a lot of cultural and political issues, particularly involvement in World War II. Ray Winkle writes a book. Is it called Planned Parenthood? Is that what it's actually? Yeah, called? yeah. <laughs> no tour. You know, look, hindsight twenty twenty. You know? Yeah, <laughs> and that I want to say is in the fifties. So you're talking about roughly twenty years after Meyer, after Meyer's death. So Ray Winkle writes this book, Planned Parenthood, and in there, he's going to not only approve of contraception, and that's also published by Concordia Publishing House, but he's also going to be at least squishy on abortion. And by the time of Seminex, the, which is 1974, the LCMS will by and large be silent about abortion, let alone about contraception. And like a lot of things about Seminex, you'll notice that we walk back part of what, how, where we got to in the early seventies, but we don't walk it all the way back. So we say that abortion is wrong contraception we actually approve of explicitly if i remember this is the early 1980s that this we say correct, yeah. how did god's chosen choose we say explicitly you know contraception is is pretty much fine in in almost every form yeah except for, yeah non yeah we approve non-abortion causing contraception yeah is how and, we do it although there's been development on that since the 80s yeah obviously <laughs> right how do god's chosen choose comes out before both the people on this podcast were born so <laughs> right allegedly it's um, been a, <laughs> right so it's been a minute 
whether you the, trust uh, the, those birth dates or not, it, it has know, been a while. The listener actually called it the Catholic and historical position, and I'm gonna I'm gonna use Catholic in this context of what they mean as the universal position. Yeah, because the Roman Catholic position to me, I've got I've got issues with it. If you if you if you'd allow me, yeah. So NFP natural family planning, which is the Roman Catholic endorsed position. So they have no artificial contraception, which I agree with. No no artificial contraception. NFP to me seems to be a distinction without a difference because it is technically an artificial form of contraception. Yeah, right. Because you're you're still not opening yourself up to the potential children you should have because you're counting dates to avoid having children. Correct. With the caveat that if it happens, it happens. And maybe I'm not being fair to NFP, but it seems to me like the underlying problem is still there. Namely, you're still not open to children. You're still trying to avoid procreation. And and that and that is what Meyer says actually because the yeah. the basic LCMS position is the use of contraception or not using contraception is an exercise within a marriage of acceptance of God's order of life. And so it's an exercise of faith for a Christian that you say, I will, I will take what you give in the same way that he giveth and he taketh everything that we, that we have mm-hmm. and that we are right. What do you have that you have not received? Yeah. So this is the exercise of faith in marriage of that that openness and Meyer's critique of the Roman Catholic position is that it does not allow faith to be exercised because it still it is still is seeking to control birth mm-hmm. by saying we will avoid a time when we are likely mm-hmm. to be able to conceive right which is not in first in Corinthians when Paul talks about times of abstinence that is not the purpose of the abstinence right. Uh, that Paul, you know, endorses. <laughs> the, right. The time of abstinence there is is sort of like something that someone, you know, during Lent. It's fasting. It's like fasting. Right. And and that's it. And and on that, that's something that we should probably think about because once you have sterilized marriage, then you have completely carnalized the institution, and then the purpose of marriage becomes something completely carnal, and so the idea then of any kind of fasting from anything makes no sense in that context because nope, I, the purpose of marriage or anything is fulfilled in satisfying a car, purely carnal desire. And it must be good because God has blessed it. So why fast? Why abstain? Why, why worry about the burden of children when the purpose of marriage is just simply a carnal pleasure? And, and so you're, and, and now I'm not saying that there, there's no pleasurable aspect or that that's not, part of it by design. I'm not going to go that far as some trad cats would do, but if if marriage is completely sterilized to the point that it's only carnal, then we have absolutely gutted the chief end of marriage. You could argue there are two chief ends, procreation and sanctification and find me a biblical justification outside of those two. I'll wait. It's always geared toward, especially in the new Testament, it is geared toward sanctification and procreation. Yeah. Yeah, and so the so the historical LCMS position is actually different from the Catholic position, and had to do, and it's a historical LCMS position. And when something is historical in the LCMS, you're always going to find precedent, both in Lutheranism before that, as well as in Martin Luther, the chief teacher of the Augsburg Confession, is what the formula of Concord calls him. And before that, you will find it in some stream of Western Christianity. So that it, it's it's going to go very far back and it has to do with exercising faith according to God's institution within marriage in this case in the same way that avoiding every you know every business you know maneuver you could make <laughs> because you're a christian is an exercise of faith in your business avoiding you know every kind of opportunity to make money that you could make whether in business or whatever your vocation is for the sake of some higher goal or other goal or divine goal is an exercise of faith. So that's the basic idea. It's not about you're going to have a million kids, all of you, or you're going to have any kids. It's about openness to what God has instituted. That's, that was always the basic issue. Mm -hmm. And I think your insight that something can be turned to purely carnal or natural ends um, natural and in, in kind of a merely natural, merely human sense of the word is really insightful because 
you will probably find that not only is this mocked, which is always an awkward thing, I think, for people to mock someone who has a lot of children. I, I, I think they just really don't understand what it is that they're making fun of. Mm -hmm. But they can mock it because the carnal nature doesn't want the bother of caring for other human beings or not too right. many of them, right? But the carnal nature also will mock lots of things that will prove in the end to be, and again, this is not about particular numbers or something. I'm not saying, oh, let's, let's outbreed the Muslims or something like that. You, you probably will, <laughs> but that's not really the point. What I'm saying is that you will find in anything where faith is exercised. So think about the disciples being sent out without, without purse or, or knapsack, right? And with only the, the shoes on their feet, right? That's an exercise of faith in their vocation as apostles of Christ. What you find when faith is being worked out is you find much greater blessing and richness than when you are seeking to control your life. Mm -hmm. So there's a general issue here about how life is shaped that is seen really readily in this particular issue of family and how many children I'm willing to have. And the, the only good answer is always as many as God gives me. But this is a general problem that we have mm -hmm. is that we're trying to be in control and your life in Christ is not a matter of your control. Yeah, and it's all and it's often just tied up simply in can I afford it? Yeah. Can I retire? These sorts of questions. A brief caveat here before people start chiming in. We're not talking about the people who are naturally sterile or couples who can't conceive. That's not one of you, you know, we're talking about people who function in the general natural order, which are by far the majority of married couples. And we've been taught both through the church and through the secular society to um, put more grain in our storehouses. Right. Explicitly against the teachings of <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. And, and I mean, people who, who are, who are not able or were not for a long time able or whatever the case may have been in, in someone's life to have children of their own biologically, they know what, <laughs> what the historic LCMS position on this teaches, which is that children are a gift. Mm -hmm. Children are not an achievement. They're not a measurement that you get to have control over. And here's your perfect little, whatever you think the perfect number is or the perfect they, two a girls, true, a boy and a girl, yeah. whatever. They know children are a gift. That's how they're they come. A, they're a truth first article gift. Yeah. Not not all the other toys that we talk about. <laughs> and no no it, microbrewery in Denver, Colorado can right. compare. Yeah, right. It goes. It really, it goes back to what we were talking about with white noise. Part of the white noise is all the vain pursuits that we're taught that matter. Yeah, right. It just, it just, it just pains me. There is a, a strain of people or, or you know there's a strain within our own theology that a lot of people endorse that comes dangerously close to the prosperity gospel and it comes under the guise of first article gifts and so my life is a pursuit of of cruises and jet skis and yeah. recreations yep and it's not, not spent in, in pursuits that matter and namely children and, and other things and, and it doesn't have to only be children there are certainly other worthwhile pursuits but it pains me because we're seeing brothers in Christ just follow after things that are going to perish. And what happens to these people when they get old and can't enjoy those things? You know, they have, they have basically nothing, nothing left after that. Nothing wrong with any of those things that I mentioned, but their life becomes a cycle of vacationing and purchasing and vacation and purchasing. That's not, that's not what the first article is about. Yeah. And the way that what we're saying is going to be received has to do with what we said earlier about the way that disciples are made. And if your discipleship, according to Christ, is not a matter of under of actually knowing and then meditating on actual divine revelation, it's just a series of stupid memes. Yeah. Right. And I don't mean visual ones. I mean, verbal right. ones. I mean, you know, stupid but, memes, yeah. so, you know, first article gifts, then of course you're going to not understand the historic Christian position on anything. Mm -hmm. because you didn't take the time to think about it. And that's, well, uh, that's fine, but just admit it's shallow. My position we, is shallow. And we talk about um, primary sources and we can even go outside of the scripture for this. 
how did Christians in the third and fourth century live? Okay, they would they would excommunicate nearly all of us. How did how did Christians even in the sixteenth century live? Yeah. Or how about in the nineteenth century? Or I'll do you one better: the early twentieth century. <laughs> And we have testimonies of all of this, and we just think, oh, we figured it out better. They were legalists. They were rigorists. Yeah. Now, we'll, but they're, we'll certainly you know, take in every word they say on the nature of Christ in the Eucharist, though. But when it comes to what they say about how should we then live, it becomes, well, that was a different time. Yeah. Or that was cultural. Yeah, it was Christian. Well, they're in four centuries, you know, we're getting there, we're getting there, but right. as far as the Christian culture right. goes, but, you know, we have the testimony of the scriptures, we have the testimony of our forefathers, and why does the scripture say that the forefathers were raised up as examples to us on how we should live? And and not just on this, how, frankly, not just on how we should confess, because a confession not lived out isn't worth the paper it's printed on. Right. And so we've kind of got off into the weeds away from, cause, cause this, this can refer to really any ethical topic that we're talking about, right. not, not just birth control, but, but anything, right. It can, it, I mean, apply it to interest, apply it to risk assessment, apply it to nearly anything. And, and there you go. But we, but we've gotten stuck only in a, essentially the only ethical thing we still talk about and really want to be on the historic side of is, is abortion at this point. And even then, we'll, we're gonna the drift will start there too, because the the drift turns into well, what if the person is pregnant in this circumstance or that circumstance? And once exceptions are made, the dominoes begin to fall. Right. Yeah. There there, there is also an issue of incapacity of modern people to state and accept general truths. Mm-hmm. We are we're attuned to specifics to circumstance. We're attuned to anything that would yeah. relativize a general position that that's just kind of a bias yeah. we, we all we can, have we cannot do abstracts the modern mind cannot yeah. do abstracts yeah and it's it's very dangerous for us because of that because you're paralyzed right because if you're arguing okay so a very here's a neutral example yeah baptism is necessary for salvation confession right. say it bible says it he that believes in his baptized will be saved he that believeth not is condemned already okay immediately Despite what the scriptures and confessions say, somebody jumps to the thief on the cross, yeah, or jumps to, um, or jumps to some wandering guy in the desert who comes to faith. And there's no water around, and <laughs> right. nobody around, right? Yeah, yeah. because some other cannot... eunuch besides the Ethiopian yeah. one who found water, <laughs> right? right. Yeah. Because they don't get the abstract, right? And um, and so, you know, that's a, every time that will happen. Even though, what is the truth? Yeah, baptism saves. Baptism is necessary. And they want to go, but it's not absolutely necessary. No, it's just necessary. Just right. say it. And if there are exceptions, God has made exceptions, but that's not the rule. Right. It is yeah. a very simple principle that the people cannot grasp today. No, they have they have trouble. So I mean, to to kind of bring that that point home is that you I, regardless of the circumstances of the birth, whether the kid is going to be in the NICU for the next year of his life or everything was great and everybody's happy and the baptism's going to happen in church in two days. Mm -hmm. I still pray Psalm 127 and 128 with every single family at every single birth because it's true. (laughs) It's categorically true, right? It's categorically true. The circumstances of life, the way that that child's life will be shaped by a birth defect, shaped by the family he was born into, shaped by the fact that mom is really tired mm-hmm. and you know she doesn't have the energy that she had at a previous whatever all that that's fine those psalms are still categorically true that children are a heritage from the lord mm-hmm. and that this the blessing on the man who fears the lord is that his wife is like a fruitful vine in, in his house and his children like olive shoots so they grow up all over the place right mm-hmm. that's still categorically true regardless of the medical, psychological, financial circumstances of that family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, well, as we're coming up closer to the uh, end of the podcast and we've alienated a good third of the audience. Yeah, right. Now let's go to a, a related question. Bohemian <laughs> Grove. That's, yeah. 
That's our last one. <laughs> Remember, the, these the are list- listener questions. We yeah. we did not jump directly from Ray Winkle to Bohemian Grove. Right. So Bohemian Grove, uh, the listener wants to know, what is Bohemian Grove? How does it relate to what we talked about with ritual sacrifice? Yeah. I mean, um, Bohemian Grove is, you know, just a little piece of woods in the San Francisco Bay Area. (laughs) It's totally normal. (laughs) Yeah, right. So for the folks at home, in mid-July, Bohemian Grove has like a two-week-long camp with some of the world elites, all men. And the boys get together and do what boys do. And um, I could describe it to you in the words of uh, the greatest president in living memory, Richard M. Nixon, but but I can't because it's a family podcast. But they get together and they do elite people stuff and they do weird rituals and um, there's a big owl and there's a mock sacrifice done at the owl in a ritual called the cremation of care. Now, uh, highly secretive. Uh, a friend of the podcast, Alex Jones, did break into it um, <laughs> and film the, the cremation of care ritual in, t- in that, the year 2000, which the, was, by the way, the year 2000 was roughly 150 years ago. Yeah, it was. It sure was. Uh, we do not live in that world anymore. There have been exposés throughout the 80s and on. People want to know what's going on there. There's a guest list. You can't get in. Secret Service involves. The Sheriff's Office is, is part of the security. Yeah. Although I think that in, in recently the Sheriff's Office no longer does that. <laughs> they. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 here's how I'll explain it. And then I'll let you take over, Dr. Coons. All it's right. weird. It's weird elitist stuff. Are there actual human sacrifices going on? I don't think so. At, at least at Bohemian Grove. Right. Yeah. And it, it it's called Bohemian Grove because it stems from a group that was foundational to the control of San Francisco until about the 60s or 70s called the Bohemian Club. Yeah. So like a lot of cities, San Francisco was controlled by a certain group of people who who had like the Union League in Philadelphia or a, a lot of the various Ivy alumni clubs yeah. in other cities. It was controlled by a group of men who collected in a club. Same thing goes for Victorian England. Right. Harry Edwards, one of the founders, is a stage actor. So if that tells you, you know, kind of what you're getting into you know, when you're yeah. founding this. Yeah. And, and San Francisco had it, its own, let's say like complexion to, to who was in this club, which is a, which is a, gr- which is a group simultaneously of sort of Yankee and Irish businessmen and eventually Italians, along with the kind of aesthetes or cosmopolitan artistic types that collected in San Francisco or Northern California generally, like Carmel by the Sea is another example. You're going to have overlap between the Bohemian Club and the founders of Carmel by the Sea. That is its own thing and and particular to its own history. And I don't have the number, but go find the San Francisco Cities episode and you can see some of this. That changes like a lot of things change in America in the 60s and 70s. And we move out of a kind of a group, literally an old boys club in this case, in control with Bohemian Grove as a way to invite other people from all over the country into that who are also in control of their own things, right? Nixon from a different power base in Southern California. Um, We change from that into a kind of multi, you know, manifold various interest groups and that's how politics will be constituted. So now we have right. our we have our gay interest group, we have our black power interest group. So that all changes. This is a an artifact of that. The reason I don't believe it's involved in child sacrifice is partly because friend of the podcast Alex Jones is either dumb or consciously there for misdirection sometimes. So you can focus on Bohemian Grove and not focus on actual child predators, say, in the California Democratic Party? <laughs> right. I mean, okay. I mean look, look is, right. it, is it concerning to do a mock human sacrifice? It's very weird, yes. at yeah, least, I mean, at the best, but, right? But, but all we're saying is the that human sacrifice is real, but it's happening elsewhere. Yes, right. R- ritualistic sacrifice is real, indisputably. Apologies to a competing podcast. Indisputably happening. <laughs> But not at Bohemian Grove, mostly. Right. 
Yeah, and it it would be an interesting an interesting episode for us to take examples of write out their secret societies or in the old LC in the historic LCMS terminology lodgery and take what is symbolic in say a Masonic ritual or symbolic at Bohemian Grove and see how it becomes literal in modern times apart from specific organized with headquarters and address code societies or clubs of earlier times because my guess based on just if you think about the abortion industry is that whatever anyone feared a lodge or secret society was doing in 1930 we are doing exponentially more and worse now but it it doesn't have to be secret or it it has been legalized or it is politically protected or whatever the case may be so that what people sort of fear and what talk about bohemian growth plays upon secrecy and interest in the the occult and the arcane and the nefarious is actually being done openly and and probably has plenty of political protection or at least discussion around it yeah absolutely so so anything else as we're coming up to the end of the show you want to you want to tell the listeners at home no i think i think we've provided <laughs> them with plenty today <laughs> yeah and uh, hopefully there's a lot to chew on um these are some of my favorite episodes to do we do read all of your questions we do consider all of your questions um if we don't answer them you know bring it back to us if you want clarification bring it back to us so always happy to know what you all want to know about so very well all right well this has been a brief history of power colonel grills and dr Kuntz here you know where to find us are you interested in entering into or fostering a biblical marriage if so set aside may 3rd to 5th 2024 and join other young lutherans and keynote speaker dr adam Kuntz. that's me for a conference on biblical marriage at grace lutheran church in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Come and learn what it means to have a godly marriage, participate in the divine service, meet like-minded folks, enjoy fellowship, and even learn a barn dance. We welcome singles, couples looking to get married, the newly married, and families. If you're a young couple, bring your third wheels because you just might end up with a fourth. Don't hesitate and register today at whatgodhasjoinedtogether.ca. That's all one word, what God has joined together.ca. Your marriage is worth a trip to the Great White North. A Martyr's Death, The Hero's Life. The theme for the 10th Men's Gathering being held this year at Lakeview Villages on April 4th to 7th. We are thrilled to have secured Pastor Brian Wolfmuller as our main speaker this year. Join 150 Christian men to learn how the martyrs of the early Christian church still preach to us with their lives, their lips, and their blood. Arrive as early as Thursday for a special Bruise and Cue session with Pastor Wolf Mueller, or stay as late as Monday to watch the full solar eclipse, which will be directly over the villages. Visit mensgathering.us for more details and to register. We hope you can join us at the 2024 Men's Gathering, a proud supporter of A Brief History of Power. Are you tired of people saying that you must accept the crumbling of Christianity? Are you looking for a place that hasn't embraced the new normal? A church that isn't taking the decline of Christian culture, families, and congregations sitting down? Are you looking for reverent liturgy and biblical teaching that proclaims the mercy of God and instructs you in holy living? Then visit Mission of the Cross Lutheran Church in Cross Lake, Minnesota, where people come for the beautiful lakes, but they stay for the church, where we are reclaiming Christendom. Are you looking for a Christ-centered healthcare provider? One that values life no matter the stage and knows that we are made in the image of God and thus have inherent regenerative abilities? Or are you a healthcare provider looking to escape the increasingly woke system that employs you? Direct eCare can help. We are a concierge telehealth company founded by a cradle Lutheran who takes his God-given vocation seriously. We offer our patients direct, unfettered access to our providers with unlimited, as-needed telehealth services for only $35 per month or $370 per year. We are currently able to provide care to patients in the state of Idaho only, but are actively seeking providers in other states that would like to partner with us to start their own direct e-care clinic. 
Whether you are a prospective patient or an interested provider, you can learn more at www.directe-care.com.